Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. All my day. When the socialist Jeremy Corbyn became the leader of the Labour Party in Britain in 2015 and mounted a grassroots campaign in 2017 to become the British Prime Minister, the ruling corporate elites, along with the war industry, panicked. They conspired with the Israel lobby to mount a vicious campaign of character assassination against Corbyn and his supporters, accusing them, even if they were Jewish, of anti-Semitism. Corbyn has long been a champion of Palestinian rights. The media did its part to crucify Corbyn as a bigot, while Labour Party officials ruthlessly purged the party of Corbyn's supporters. Corbyn was eventually driven out of the party in 2020 after the snap election loss against Boris Johnson. The neutralization of Corbyn is an ominous precedent. The purging of Corbyn and his supporters effectively emasculated the left within the Labour Party. This was its goal. The unholy alliance between Israel, the war industry, and the corporatists raised the question of whether it is possible in Britain or the United States to reform the system from within. Joining me to discuss these issues is Asa Winstanley, an associate editor and reporter with the website Electronic Intifada and the author of Weaponizing Anti-Semitism, How the Israel Lobby Brought Down Jeremy Corbyn. So let's begin with who Corbyn was and how he gained such support uh, within the Labor Party, because there's a democratic process uh, within the Labor Party whereby the members actually have the capacity to have their voices heard in a way that is not true in either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party in the United States. Yeah, great to be with you, Chris. Yes, that's right. There were changes to the Labour Party's rules in 2015. Um, the Labour Party was previously quite undemocratic, but the rule changes made it more democratic. And it made it easier for anyone, really, to vote in, in the in party's internal elections. It wasn't quite as open as um, the Democratic and Republican primaries in, in the US, where you know, anyone can essentially register to vote as, as a Democrat or a Republican and then vote in the primaries. Um, but it made it easier. It, made, it meant that not only were there Labour Party members could vote in the elections, but also anyone who was, um, you just had to pay three pounds, basically, to become a registered supporter of the Labour Party. And it just made it a lot easier um, and it gave it gave the members a lot more say. So the the percentage um, uh, of the the sort of electoral college, as it were, within the Labour Party, that went towards members and supporters, as opposed to um, as opposed to the MPs um, who would choose the leader, was increased. So it meant that the it meant that the left wing candidate won, which had never happened before. And we should be clear that uh, the Labour Party under Tony Blair transformed itself into a neoliberal version, much like Clinton did to the Democratic Party. So Labor, which traditionally had been uh, a kind of bulwark of, uh, uh, you know, a political bulwark for uh, the working class, uh, no longer was so. So it was a very different party from what it was 
at its inception. Yeah, it was ostensibly still a socialist party on paper, but in reality, it was the party of Tony Blair, which meant it was the party of privatization. It was the party of war. You know, um, I, I mean, I first got my political education during the uh, early noughties after the 9-11 attacks and the invasion of Afghanistan being involved in the anti-war movement. And to me at that time, and to, to like to so many other people, the Labour Party was the war party. It was the party that was helping George W. Bush to invade Afghanistan and Iraq. And so, you know, Jeremy Corbyn becoming the leader of the Labour Party was the last possible thing you could imagine. Um, because he was he was in the Labour Party, he was a Labour MP at that time, but he was on the back benches. So he was basically rebelling against his party leader. Um, he was, you know, voting against the Iraq war. He was voting against privatization. He was voting against dismantling of the welfare state and, and, and things like that. So he would be on our demonstrations. He'd be leading our demonstrations. He'd be doing the speeches against the Iraq war. And uh, crucially, he was part of the Palestine Solidarity Movement as well. The attacks against him began almost immediately. Uh, you write that uh, Corbyn had barely arrived as labor leader in September 2015 before a senior serving general in the British Armed Forces warned the Sunday Times that there would be a mutiny if Corbyn were elected prime minister. I'm quoting, there would be mass resignations at all levels and you would face the very real prospect of an event which would effectively be a mutiny, the general said. Feelings are running very high within the armed forces. You would see a major break in convention with some generals directly and publicly challenging Corbyn. He said the army just wouldn't stand for it. I think people would use whatever means possible, fair or foul, to prevent that. That's just unbelievable. Was that the first real kind of salvo against Corbyn? It was one of the early ones, absolutely. I mean, I think that was that took place um, before even that, before even he became. Uh, wait, I can see the footnote now in my book. It was it was just after he became leader. So it yeah, it was one of the very early mutinies, and it were uh, it was a case of um, that. What makes Corbyn different from even someone like Bernie Sanders, who he has a lot in common with, is that he was and is very much uh, an anti-imperialist in a lot of ways. He's he's very um, strong on foreign policy. He's very uh, he, he was sometimes known and described as the, the foreign minister of the left. And he was, you know, he voted against every war, including the war on Libya. Um, he was somebody who was very critical even of the British security services. Um, he was involved in trying to um, campaign against apartheid South Africa at a time when the British government was supporting a South Af apartheid South Africa. Um, he was involved in trying to overcome, overturn miscarriages of justice um, in you know campaigns like uh, the Birmingham Six and, and which involved you know the collusion of uh, security services. He um, was, uh, somebody who was in um, the North of Ireland, you know, he was campaigning for for the end of the British occupation of the North of Ireland, and he brought he brought Jerry Adams to Parliament to you know. This is we should when, just for for American viewers. This is the political wing of the IRA, right? So at a time when the IRA was involved in uh, uh, you know a 
armed, armed struggle against British armed forces, Jeremy Corbyn was trying to negotiate an end to that armed conflict by bringing the political wing of the IRA to into Parliament. And so, you know, I suppose what you could call the British deep state had a kind of long account against Jeremy Corbyn, and there's 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 a long record of British um, intelligence services trying to um, spy on and infiltrate um, le- not only left wing groups but even left wing MPs, including Jeremy Corbyn and his allies. And so this was quite a very a very early and very open signal by um, a serving British senior serving British general. Um, he wasn't named by the Sunday Times, but you know this, this exa- that is there's no doubt about the credibility of the source because that's exactly the sort of um, source that the Sunday Times has. Into you know military and intelligence sources like this, that, and, that, and that they base most of their reporting on. Um, and, and you know it was very it was a very clear signal that if he became prime minister, there would be um, there'd be steps taken against him. Two thousand and eight. Uh, so a snap election is expected and two newspapers report that Corbyn has been quote unquote summoned for a quote unquote facts of life talk with the head of MI15 and a quote unquote acquaintance meeting with the head of MI16. These are domestic and foreign intelligence agencies. Uh, but that, that also was a kind of fascinating moment when the deep state uh, kind of again sent signals that Corbyn was unacceptable. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So this was at a time when, as you said, there was, um, it was a time of great political instability in the country. And it was a period when there was a, a snap election expected at any time. And Corbyn was the leader of the opposition. And so he was, he was, <laughs> He was brought in for a meeting with MI5 and MI6, and they it was supposed to be a secret meeting. It was supposed to be a top secret meeting. You know, Corbyn has talked about this. He later talked about it. He later talked about how um it was, you know, it was very clear and it was made very clear to him and his staff that they were not to talk about the meeting at all, and that it was top secret, you know, as, as you would expect with the heads of the intelligence services. Well, they then proceeded to leak those meetings and they leaked them in the way that you described that, that he was summoned for a, for a quote unquote facts of life meeting. Um, and that essentially they're trying to portray, you know, trying to put their foot down and trying to say, you know, just in case you did become prime minister, you're going to have to change all your anti-war ways and you're going to have to go along with what we say. And, so uh, Corbyn then later talked about how about that and about how it, it had been leaked deliberately by them as a way to undermine him and that they were um, putting out the this idea that he was um, not fit for office, um, not fit for high office, that he was um, some sort of danger to national security, and the British press went along with this all along. You know that they they um, Matt Kennard. Um, a friend of mine, investigative journalist for Declassified UK, he put out a really good article studying this that he found um, 34 articles. Uh, I believe this uh, he he put out this his article in I believe it was 2019, and he towards the end of 2019, and he looked at um, all of the reporting against Corbyn, and he found 34 articles that had been openly sourced 
by MI5 and MI6, so the, the domestic and international, effectively Britain's FBI and, and CIA, um, that um, 34 of them had been, 34 of these articles had been sourced openly by MI5, MI6 and the military. So in these articles, they're openly stating, you know, according to military sources or according to intelligence sources, um, and these articles all portrayed Corbyn as a threat to, to, to quote unquote national security. So that's what they they were doing openly, you know, very clearly within the national media, sending out these very clear signals that, that um, against Corbyn. So we can only imagine what they were doing secretly. I want to talk about the U.S. because this is from uh, a leaked audio recording obtained by the Washington Post. CIA, then CIA Director Mike Pompeo in a private meeting with the Israel lobby said that the U.S. government could stage its own intervention to stop Corbyn from becoming prime minister. This is the quote from Pompeo. It could be that Mr. Corbyn manages to run the gauntlet and get elected, Pompeo said. Quote, it's possible. You should know we won't wait for him to do those things to begin to push back. We will do our level best. It's too risky and too important and too hard once it's already happened. So you even have the U.S. government making uh, in private threats that they will prevent Corbyn from becoming prime minister. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's pretty crazy. I mean, it's just it's so reminiscent of things like Operation Gladio and the CIA intervention in the Italian elections after the Second World War. You know, it's um, it's. It's pretty crazy stuff. This is this again. This is what they were doing fairly openly, you know. Um, yes, this meeting was in private, but it was um, it, it made its way into the Washington Post, you know. So yeah. So let's talk about the weaponization of anti-Semitism, which they used very effectively to destroy Corbyn and also to purge the party. And what they went after were leftists within the party. I mean, the irony is that people they purged were in many cases, or several cases, actually Jewish. Uh, so 2018, three pro-Israel British Jewish newspapers publish identical front-page editorials claiming that a Corbyn-led government posed, quote, an existential threat to Jewish life in this country due to the, quote, Corbynite contempt for Jews and Israel. So you had clearly the forces, the intelligent forces, the military, the corporatists opposed to Corbyn. But the public uh, truncheon that was used to bring him down was anti-Semitism. And that's what you do such a good job of chronicling in your book. So explain how the process worked. It was really devastating. It was, it was a, a really effective campaign. Like you have to hand it to the Israel lobby. They, they did it. Like they, they did it quite successfully. And the main way they did it was to target Corbyn's movement um it was it was about his I mean, he, he his secret of his success was that he was an insurgent candidate um for prime minister and that was kind of his superpower was that he had hundreds of thousands of people joining the labor party or rejoining the labor party as you know if they probably many people had previously left under um during the the tony blair years who, you know, again, as you mentioned, was someone who was very much um, of the same sort of tendency as Bill Clinton, this so-called so third way where, you, you know, 
we're not conservatives, but we're not socialists out either. We're, we're a third way. Um, and a lot of these grassroots activists had left the party and uh, in that period because, you know, because they were opposed to his policies of privatization, his policies of war, but also just because the, of the lack of democracy within the party, within the Labour Party. It was really hollowed out during the um, it, um, Tony Blair years. It was really centralised in many ways. And um, the Jeremy Corbyn era led to start, renewed hope that there could be democratization of the party um, and that there would be um, uh, a new mass movement bringing um, bringing hope really to the country, bringing hope to, to working class, bringing hope to these sort of popular movements against racism, against war and so forth. Um, and um, so there was two, you know, the Labour Party membership had decreased so much over the years. Um, and now it's decreasing again. But in the Corbyn years, it went up to over half a million people. You know, it became the largest um, political party in Western Europe. It was absolutely huge. It was approaching 600,000 at one point. Um, and uh, then what happened was this weapon of anti-Semitism became such a useful tool for the right. So as you state, and I think it's important to note that it wasn't only the Israel lobby. It was it was all these kind of forces working together. You know, the whole of the British establishment press, the whole of the corporate press, and the British establishment in general was united against Corbyn. But the, un the unique weapon, the most powerful weapon against Corbyn was this weaponized anti-Semitism, where um, uh, essentially manufactured and fabricated forms of, uh, or exaggerated forms of anti-Semitism were... Um, were brought up and misportrayed in this way, where they they attacked. First of all, they attacked. They tried attacking Corbyn himself. That didn't work so much at first because, you know, Corbyn has this long record of being an anti-racist, and that record includes uh, acting against anti-Semitism, against real anti-Semitism that which does exist from the right. Um, but. You know, so that 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 wasn't so effective at first. It later on became effective. But what then became really devastating was it was a really useful tool to divide the movement. So these two hundred thousand people or more that joined the party just essentially to vote for Corbyn and to bring in something to change the Labour Party. Um, you know, they were picked off one by one. So his most prominent supporters within the party were attacked as anti-Semites falsely. So Ken Livingstone, for example, the former mayor of London, you know, a, a Labour a Labour left winger and rebel in his own right, um, who had ended up um, having to run against Labour. And he did so successfully in the Tony Blair era, era because like Corbyn, he was very much kind of a, a gadfly to Tony Blair. Um, and he, you know, he, he achieved many things in, in power as mayor in London and um, he brought in all these left wing, uh, Policies, and he was somebody who was, you know, in the eighties was involved in local government in London, and and um, you know supporting anti-racist causes, and uh, and and um, you know a supporter of the gay community at a time when it was incredibly, when it was quite unpopular in the country, you know, when things that are now sort of considered very mainstream, um, and you know, so despite his long record, he was attacked as an anti-Semite because he was saying. There was there was all these headlines about how Corbyn Corbyn's movement was anti-Semitic, and it was essentially all an attack on his record 
of solidarity with Palestinians, which was always misportrayed and smeared as anti-Semitism, which is done all the time by Israel and its supporters. As I mean, as as we're filming this, you know, it's going on against Roger Waters, the the founder of Pink Floyd, you know, and they're they're kind of smearing his uh, his show as if it's anti-Semitic. So Corbyn's supporters were essentially one by one picked off in this way, um, and eventually, in the end, they got him. Let's talk about the role of Israel, because as you point out in the book, you have these front groups in Britain purporting to represent British Jews uh, with extremely close ties to the embassy, and some of those individuals actually came out of the embassy itself, and Netanyahu, uh, the prime minister of Israel, becomes involved also in the smears against Corbyn. Let's talk about Israel's role in this. Mm. So I, this is really important because there was actual involvement of the state of Israel itself. So we we saw, for example, there are you know there's there's when we talk about the Israel lobby, what do we what do we mean? Well, it's it's not one monolithic entity. You know, it's it's a as you know very well, Chris. It's a it's kind of a network, a diffuse network of different organisations which work together. Uh, they work in coordination with each other for the most part. Occasionally, you know, you, they fall out with each other. So you get ten, you know, things like um, J Street, which is a more it was supposed to be a more sort of liberal Zionist organization, um, but it, but is ultimately a pro-Israel lobbying group. And then you get APAC, which is you know, nowadays very openly sort of Trumpist. Um, so occasionally they will have fallings out and they will be competing against each other. But by and large, these organizations work together. And crucially, they coordinate, most of them uh, coordinate their activities with the state of Israel itself. So with the Israeli embassy um, or with um, the with uh, entities within the Israeli government itself, ministries within the Israeli government itself. There was one particular ministry which is now um, being folded, supposedly disbanded, but in reality folded into other Israeli ministries called the Ministry of Strate Strategic Affairs which um, was essentially another um, spy agency, really, was what it was. It was a sort of semi-covert entity stacked with former um, with, with former military intelligence and other forms of Israeli spies. And um, this, this was the entity which was really uh, involved in attacking Corbyn. And we see within... Uh, so several of these Israel lobby groups are, uh, in Britain are... Um, Israel lobby groups that are consider themselves to be liberal Zionist or even supposedly left-wing Zionist. So, and several of them are actually within the Labour Party itself. So most notably, and obviously you've got Labour Friends of Israel. So rather than having, the way the Israel lobby works in the UK is a little bit different from, um, from the US. So there's no exact equivalent of APAC. There are some groups that kind of want to be the equivalent of APAC, but they're not as big. But the main way the lobbying is done is through um, groups within the, the two or three main political parties. So there's a Conservative Friends of Israel, the, which is the Conservative is obviously the ruling um, party. Um, there's a Labour Friends of Israel, and there's even a Liberal Democrat Friends of Israel, Liberal Democrat being the, the third party, which is sometimes in coalition government. Um, and... Uh, these groups are incredibly close to the they're, they're incredibly close to the Israeli embassy. So the Al Jazeera, the um, Arab, uh, the Qatari satellite channel, 
that are really important. And I cover this in a chapter of the book, and I know you're very familiar with it as well in your reporting, Chris. The Al Jazeera's investigative unit did uh, a really important undercover um, documentary series in 2017 um, about this, and they infiltrate their reporters infiltrated the British Israel lobby and especially um, Labour Friends of Israel. And what they found was, you know, in, in public, Labour Friends of Israel says, "Oh well, but you know, we're just lay normal Labour members who we happen to support the." support the state of Israel, the apartheid state of Israel, although obviously they deny it's an apartheid state. Um, um, but but in reality, what the undercover journalists found was that they actually work very, very closely with the um, Israeli embassy and that the, the Labour Friends of Israel is essentially a front group. Um, one of their staff members, whose name is Michael Rubin, who's now the director, who's then a, a junior um, employee of Labour Friends of Israel, but is now the the main, uh, the leader of Labour Friends of Israel, um, he's he was caught on camera in that investigation saying that um, they speak to the Israeli embassy, quote unquote, most days, and that um, we like to have this, we like to have Labour Friends of Israel as a as as a as a separate identity to um, to the Israeli embassy because it helps us to get into places where we wouldn't necessarily be able to do as. You know, Labour Friends of Israeli Embassy was the way he puts it. I, I so, just, Ace, I only have four minutes left, and I want to talk about the role of the media. Uh, we should also be clear that Al Jazeera did a similar undercover operation in the United States on the power of the Israel lobby in the United States, which Israel managed to block uh, broadcast. It never was broadcast on Al Jazeera. A pirated copy was up on Electronic Intifada. I hope it still is because yeah, everyone, is. <laughs> should, everyone should watch it. It's quite uh, disturbing. But let's talk about the role of the media because they amplified this smear of anti-Semitism and every time they interviewed Corbyn, you have examples in the book, uh, they just hammered him and hammered him and hammered him, even times not even letting him answer. Uh, but they were a major part in this character assassination or they played a major part. That's right. Yeah, I, I opened the book with uh, a really quite good example, early example of that by uh, Channel 4 News. Now, Channel 4 News um, is well known in the UK as the liberal TV channel, as the liberal news program. You know, it doesn't have that much advertising on it. You know, it's subsidized by the state um, in a similar way to the BBC, although it doesn't quite have the the budget of the BBC. But it's it's well known as, an, as, a, as a liberal news program. But they were really adamantly against Corbyn, you know, and they were they were really quite vociferous against him. Um, the liberal media in general was really his worst enemy. So well, the, the, guard, Guardian, the, guard, the Guardian was awful. It was like it was just like even their news reporting was just very, very anti-Corbyn. Um, ne never mind the uh, op-eds, the opinion pieces and so forth. Um, the Guardian was really, really strongly opposed to him. And it just, you know, it just showed that when it came down to it, they were really um, more about their advertisers. So what happens? He he uh, he's eventually uh, he he's essentially his own supporters are purged and right down to the lowest levels. I mean, initially, as you're you're right, the the kind of senior leadership was support him supported him as purged, but local groups are purged from labor. I mean, really ruthlessly down to the grassroots. So he's bereft of support within the party. 
Um, in essence, labor, by the time he uh, challenges Boris Johnson, by that time, labor has gutted or destroyed his own campaign on purpose. Yeah, there was a really, a, a, a really blatant form of internal sabotage to the point where there was labor MPs who were really working against their own campaigns. And some of them did actually lose their seats, but it was so important to them that um, Corbyn not win not become prime minister that they'd rather lose their own seats and we, we saw that there were several um labor mps who actually left the party and tried to start a new party which um i forget the name of because it's in the book but they, they say so it was such it was such a forgettable you know um project that it was very clear that it was just a sabotage project to try and um, stop Corbyn winning to the point where there was money set aside, you know, leaks, leaked documents later showed there was money set aside, um, Labour Party money to work against the, Corbyn's Labour Party. It was it was really a kind of crazy um, internal. I mean, it was an internal sabotage. It was very, it was very, very uh, extreme. The same thing happened to George McGovern, uh, the Democratic Party hierarchy, and they again had liberalised the rules by which candidates could get votes or support, uh, the same thing. They joined forces with the Republican Party to destroy McGovern. Uh, Corbyn, of course, has now been pushed out of the Labor Party as an independent when he stands for re-election. He's still sitting in uh, the House of Commons. When he stands for re-election, he actually will be challenged by a Labor Party candidate. I, I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrishedges.substack.com.